You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Chelsea. Today we have a two for one, I suppose. Uh, This is about two cold cases and they are, it's a sibling set. I mean, I consider them kids. They're 18 under. So if you don't want to hear a case about kids, skip. Just a warning. This took place in Nazareth. Um, I'm not familiar with the area. I'm not sure if you guys are. A little bit. I know the general, like where it is, but that, yeah. nothing beyond yeah, that. That's about it. Yeah, I I don't even generally know where it is, honestly. I feel like I hear about it, but I don't I can't place like where what section of PA it's in. I didn't even look it up this time. It's north of you guys. Is it? For some mm-hmm. reason I thought it was closer to you, Sarah. Don't know why. Um, it's toward me. Oh. Not it would be like a triangle. Okay. From us. Okay. And this is actually, looking into it, one of the second oldest cold cases. I saw mentioned in a couple articles. I think, yeah, since there was another one that was recently solved, it moved to the second spot. So the first person we're going to talk about is Gail Lee Schultz. She was born on November 19th, 1934. Her mother died when she was young. And her father, Paul, ended up remarrying a woman named Claire. They then had another child who was named Paul Jr., And he was born January 15th, 1941. He had special needs, but at the time, the type of diagnosis that we have today wasn't really a thing back then. We've talked about it before, but looking at articles and what other people have said about him, it's believed that he had autism. In some news articles, he was described as being nonverbal and would only make groaning noises to communicate. Okay. And I mean, honestly, special needs is a huge spectrum, so it could have been, it could not have been, so. Didn't right. they diagnose everyone with schizophrenia back then or something like that? I'm not sure. Oh. I know they didn't care. <laughs> well, yeah, and there were there were like three huge diagnoses that you could get and that was pretty much it, so. Especially yeah, when it came to I, mental health. I I know that that element of it is correct. I can't remember if it's schizophrenia for sure that they were all diagnosed as. Yeah. Well, all women were hysterical, so. Well, yeah. (laughs) Do cocaine about it. So at the time, there were no opportunities for children like Paul Jr. in school, and he was unable to attend. And it seemed like the family never reached out to get him the help or like therapy. And honestly, there might not have been any type of help back then specifically for him, such as like working on maybe speech to work on communication or therapists that could help him sign. I think it was either you tried to help them as best you could at home or you put them in an asylum at that time. That's just what people did. Well, it seemed like this family was super supportive of Paul Jr. because they ended up moving to a more open subdivision in Upper Nazareth Townships. It's called the East Lawn Garden section. Okay. I guess there's like sections there. And really they did this so he could kind of explore it. I almost got a sense that they were kind of, they had a backyard. I do know that. I don't know if it was fenced, but it seemed like the father at least would let him play back there by himself. That's what I kind of got the feel for. And it was along a creek and he just kind of liked to wander. Gail would take him out 
And the creek was called Black Rock Creek. And he liked to look for rocks. But I think now it's called Shuneck Creek. Never heard of it. Yeah, neither have I. And now Gail, on the other hand, she was like super artistic. She loved writing poetry. She played the ukulele. She would sketch and would create watercolor paintings. And at the time, she was kind of more of a homebody. She didn't really have an interest in dating. And she didn't have concrete plans for her future, but everyone that knew her felt that she probably would have pursued her artistic side or, you know, capabilities. And after high school, Gail really focused on working with Paul Jr., trying to get him a little bit more independent. And I think that's why they were so kind of supportive of Paul. They didn't like automatically put him in a home. Everyone kind of in town knew about him. It wasn't like they were like hiding him in the basement, if you will. Sure. And even though they weren't like full siblings, I mean, that's just a lot of dedication. Just knowing from having a special needs son myself, I couldn't imagine having a child that was not able to communicate as clearly as like you and me. Mm-hmm. So it definitely seemed like she totally loved her brother. On March 7th, 1953, around 2 p.m. after lunch, Gail took Paul Jr. to go visit a friend nicknamed Chubby. Oh, the 50s. <laughs> yeah. And he lived on the same street as they did. So it wasn't like far or anything. He would join the siblings for their walks along the creek to find all these rocks. I, it was mentioned that they liked to look for quartz. And on that specific day, Chubby wasn't allowed to go with them. He was cleaning the basement for his father when the siblings ended up showing up. And he, I guess he wasn't like completely finished. So his father was like, nah, gotta finish. So they visited very shortly and then decided to just go to the creek alone. And this creek, well, Chubby lived on their street and this creek ran along like the back of their neighborhood. So okay. it's all very close vicinity to each other. So Claire, the stepmom, well, we'll just call her mom. She's stepmom to Gail, but she is Paul's mom. Sure. Noticed around 4.30 PM that the children hadn't returned and she became worried. At that time frame. It was cold. You know, March can be cold, can be, it's like hit or miss, but on that day it was cold. It was almost like at freezing temperatures. And it's also around the time that it's kind of starting to get dark. So she called her husband, Paul Sr., to go look for them. And the 7th of March was on a Saturday. So Paul Sr. wasn't at his full-time job as a draftsman. He worked at Binney and Smith, which I never heard of. And I thought it was a funny name, personally. It sounds very 50s. It just... yeah does. I looked into what it was and a fun fact that they were the inventors of Crayola crowns. Uh, oh, huh. Yeah. Benny and Smith was a outgrowth of a chemical company that made pigments and the company sold their pigment products locally, but there was demand as the business kind of grew and the company would use wax marking crowns to label these boxes. And as time went on, these crowns became like the main part of their business, which I thought was pretty cool. That's really interesting. And now it, it makes totally a little is. more sense that like the Crayola factory is in Easton, yep. which is mm -hmm. kind of yeah. like in the same area, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time, like this wasn't the first company to create the wax crowns, but they produced the first product that was entirely safe for children. And I thought it was absolutely adorable because in one of the articles I read that Paul Sr. would provide Gail with all of her art supplies that um, came from the company. Yeah. I thought that, I thought it was cute. I don't know why. So fun fact about Crayola, the music teacher on my team at school was a child model for Crayola and is actually still on some of the packaging. So <laughs> if you ever see packaging with like a seven or eight year old blonde girl 
on a ladder. <laughs> it's her. That's funny. Interesting. <laughs> so, wow, you know a celebrity, Anthony, but uh, <laughs> I, and and I know a girl from a reality show. I just have all the celebrities wow. in my life right now. <laughs> I know living it up. Is that the girl from the Crayola box? <laughs> <laughs> Paul Sr. wasn't working in that job on the, at the specific time, but he had a side hustle as a TV repairman, which I absolutely love hearing. The hustle is a thing. You're a fan of side hustles. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. None of us are good at sitting still. No, not no. at all, actually. Like, yeah. No. So he did a, this business in his home with a partner named Robert Howells. And on this particular day, he was home and just like took a peek outside when Claire was like, hey, where are the kids? He got concerned when he didn't see the children in the backyard. He knew they played in the creek. So he walked towards it and he immediately noticed two bodies in the creek water mm. face down. Yeah. Oh, man. Later, it was determined that it was only 10 inches of water where they actually were uh, laying. It's interesting to know that at the time, it was almost freezing temps, but it didn't seem the water was frozen at all in that section. And Sarah, I'm wondering if it needs to be a lower temperature for running water to freeze. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. That's um, and that's why, like, if temperatures are getting low, uh, that's why they tell people to, like, run water. Okay. Because it keeps the water moving and keeps the water flow going so the pipes won't freeze. Okay. Um, so it's same same effect in, like, natural bodies of water. Perfect. That's what a I lake assume. will freeze faster than a river. Okay. Great to know. I thought that, but just wanted to be 100% sure. Yeah. So Paul Sr. was obviously screaming and frantic when he discovered his children and he was trying to get them out of the creek. And I guess he just naturally assumed that they had drowned and he was trying to perform CPR on them. Robert, this part, this part-time worker for him, heard these screams and called the family doctor, a man named John Fraunfelder. And the Nazareth Ambulance. And I'm assuming this would be the type of doctor that would do, like, house visits, if that makes sense. Like, back in that time. Oh, yeah, that was common. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I felt like that would be. So, police weren't called until later because everyone thought that it was just an accident. They did notice that Gail had a gash on her head, but I guess it was just assumed that it happened during, like, a tragic accident. Like, maybe she slipped and fell trying to maybe save her brother. That's what I would assume. I see my two children in a creek. First of all, I'm, like, not even thinking clearly because my children are dead. And then you see them in water, you assume they just fell and drowned. Yeah, exactly. So I did think it was interesting because they were actually taken to the Nazareth Fire Company by volunteers, not to a hospital. I don't know if the fire company at the time was closer. I do know that uh, firemen, firewomen do know like CPR and like might have some like medical equipment, but it's not like a hospital. My best guess would be that the creek was probably not an easily accessible place for the ambulance to get to, whereas the firehouse likely would have been. Um small town like Nazareth, they're probably not too far apart. So, I mean, my guess would be that they just took them to the firehouse as kind of like a staging area. And then when the ambulance could get there, 
you know, the ambulance could take them to the hospital. I mean, it seems like they didn't get that chance. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking that's probably what the case was, just that it was easier to get them to a secure area like a firehouse while the ambulance was en route. And then it would be easier to get them into the ambulance rather than having to... They may not have had a hospital as close either. So I'm yeah, guessing maybe there was too. some equipment that at least the ambulance workers and or doctor could possibly work with at the firehouse. And I mean, now we have hospitals on every freaking corner, but yeah. Yeah. not so much in the 50s. So maybe it was just more convenient. Not really convenient, but I mean, closer. It might even be possible that, oh, we've got two people here, and even if we have an ambulance crew coming, they can only take one. Right, yeah. So they have to, you know, they're going to just have to do what they can do here for both of them. Yeah. So, yeah, that there's a lot of possibilities of what it could be. I didn't even think about some of those, so thank you. <laughs> even when they got to the fire company, life-saving measures were performed per an article, but they were pronounced dead at the fire company. Then they were moved to a funeral home called Cadenus Funeral Chapel, but today is known as Strunk Funeral Home. The funeral director, John C. Cadenus, was preparing these children's bodies for embalming, and I guess he was curious or just wanted to have a closer look. Um, and he peeked around their heads where, you know, Gail's was noticed. I'm not sure how visible Paul's was to the, like, because I only saw, like, everyone noticed Gail's gash. I didn't see anything about anyone mentioning Paul's. But he decided to look and he deemed that these head wounds were too severe to have been caused by slipping on rocks. He was the one who contacted the police and he really is the one who moved this case from, you know, an accident to a homicide, which blows my mind. Thank God he decided to say something. Yeah. I was just thinking how many times has something like this happened and it's just been written off as the accident because it's easier. the funeral director assumes that due diligence was done or yeah. somebody just doesn't take the time to look like that's, I know it's a very negative place for my brain to go, but that's immediately what I started I've thinking of. I've heard that of. before though. So, yeah. I mean, it happens. So once the case got moved to a homicide, the children then underwent an autopsy where they found Gail was struck several times in the head with a blunt object. And in almost all the articles, they like refer to the object possibly being a hammer. Oh my uh, God. But it's not, like, yeah, it's not definitive. And there was never a weapon found. So I'll, I'll say that. But they assume it was a hammer. Um, Yikes. Yes. Paul Jr. was struck three times in the head. One of the blows was so strong it actually penetrated his skull. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I guess that would be why they think a hammer might be involved. Yeah. Ugh. But we'll talk a little bit more once I get through a little bit more what else it could have okay. been. Um, Gail had what police thought could have been defensive wounds. She had a compound fracture on one of her thumbs and a deep cut on one of her hands. And so someone I saw in one of the articles mentioned it could have been like a knife where someone was hitting with like the butt because if she had a cut, you're not really getting a cut from a hammer unless you had a hammer and a knife. 
Not Maybe. really sure. So there was that, but like nothing's like definite. So, and I don't know if we'll ever know. I believe that no doubt that she probably tried to save herself and Paul Jr. from whatever like foul creature did this. She seems so protective of Paul. Yeah. So I bet. Yeah. In the autopsy, it was also determined that her death time was around 2.30 p.m. That their death time. Um, and if you remember, they left after lunch around 2, visited very briefly with Chubby. So, I mean, it's a very short time frame. Yeah. After yeah. they were last all. And the case really seemed doomed from the beginning since there was a huge delay in police involvement. The crime scene was never protected. Neighbors, the fire department, onlookers, family and medical workers traipsed through the entire area, destroying any evidence that there could have possibly been. And not to mention there was a fresh coat of snow on the ground by the time the police ended up, you know, arriving to look around. And I thought it was interesting that nine days later, Gail's glasses were found a couple dozen feet away from where the bodies were found. So it had to be placed there because there's so many people like looking, you know, and it's not that far away from them. Well, I guess if it's covered in snow and if there's anything else on the ground, I mean, they're probably not like glasses, like kind of thick. They're probably like wire framed glasses. I could probably see. You need to look at them. I put a picture. Oh, really? Those things are huge. And people were like kind of hoping like, I mean, now ish that maybe they would have fingerprints on them or something that could lead to clues. Um, Because back then, obviously, DNA wasn't a thing. Sure. So we all, all of us know that family typically gets looked at first in most investigations. And this one is no different. Police interviewed them extensively in both Paul Sr. and Claire passed lie detector tests. And, like, literally immediately after they passed those, they were cleared of any involvement in the death of the children. Hmm. And that was on March 16th, 1953. And I think back in the day, they relied so much more on lie detector tests than they should have. Mm -hmm. And they don't really rely on them that heavily like they did back then today. And they're probably... They were probably even less um, reliable reliable back then. So, yep. Yikes. (laughs) I mean, you figure they're not even like relevant in court. Yeah. At this point. So it basically means nothing. Entire arguments on them previously. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I did read some articles and people speculation, like, what would be the reason to kill either of the children? A lot of people were like, it had to be Claire. Um, But, like, there was no... It never came out that there was any, like, ill will between... Or there was, like, a bad relationship between them. One of the family members that is still living believes that it was someone that got irritated with Paul for his moaning. Hmm. And, like, Gail was just kind of, like, a bi-factor. Like, she was there. Yeah. And probably tried to protect him, like you said. Exactly. So, if she's in the way. Yep. That was my gut reaction, honestly. I, the, well, the family member says that they just think that someone was, like, passing by and got irritated and Paul might not have, like, let it go. Like, not let it go, but, like, Grace, as you know, Landon, like, Landon can fixate on something and keep literally going. And no matter how many times I'll be like, okay, 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 he'll just keep going. And a lot of kids like that, especially with autism, are like that. And so maybe he wasn't, like, targeted, like, this man came to look for him. It just happened that wrong pass, wrong time. 
That's so sad to think about. It is. I mean, I but, like crimes of passion, sure, but like this kid is annoying you, so you're going to kill him and his sister? Like weirder things have happened and more awful yeah. things have happened for sure, but it's just so like our brains can't comprehend something like that. Well, just think of the time frame. Like back then, people with disabilities like weren't I don't think considered like people. Yeah. Like maybe he didn't think it wouldn't matter. And maybe yeah. like he already started the action and then Gail stepped in and is like, "Oh shit, what do I do now?" Right. I don't know. Well, and there was also a mindset as well that uh if you do have any sort of special needs, you're basically poison and if you are supportive of anyone with special needs then you're also poison and so you know if he's attacking someone if he's being attacked by someone and gail steps in to help that person's attitude may just be oh well you're supporting him i'm just gonna take you down too um and obviously i don't prescribe to that but there is that mindset and it was much more visible at that time, you know, looking in the the 50s. Yeah. It's sad. It really is. In an article from the Morning Call from 1988, it states that the case file had 450 pages, basically all of hundreds of interviews that they had conducted over, you know, that time frame. And at that time, it was still open. And apparently every couple of years, a tip would be given. The article states that each tip was investigated to like the full extent possible. And it mentioned that this case really puzzled law enforcement due to the fact that these murders happened in broad daylight within sight of a dozen homes, because literally you could see where they drowned from their parents' kitchen window. You could see that. Wow. Yeah. And again, they lived on Mitchell Avenue. They lived at 28 Mitchell Avenue. And it was literally just located right outside of the borough of Nazareth. So like uh, when you, at least for me, when I think borough, like for you and me, Grace, we live in boroughs. They're very packed. They're very dense. Yeah. And it was even stated that witnesses placed the kids right there before their deaths, like right before 2.30. So people were walking and saw them. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So right now, it'll be 70 years in March since the death of this sibling pair. Police in the community feel that the killer is probably dead at this point. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone was kind of hopeful over time that the story would come out like, you know, a deathbed confession or maybe someone wrote it down or someone told somebody else and maybe the person died and someone was willing to say it, but nothing has come out at all. Um, The initial head investigator, Captain Charles S. Cook, died in 1954. And then the same year, only a month and a half later, Paul Sr. died due to a heart attack. Claire died in 1970. And... In March of 2010, in another Morning Call article, it states that this case is the coldest of the cold cases in Northampton County and that there have been zero leads in decades. And this case in 2010 was one of the last cold cases to solve on like this cold case like unit that they like created. I did get confused. Mm. I read it in an article and it says that this cold case unit is from Allentown, but this is not Allentown. So I don't know if they just do a broader area because like there's two specific people on cold cases. I could not figure that out, just putting it out there. But I have the story linked. Yeah, they're not very far apart. Um, So it could just be like Allentown and surrounding areas. Okay. So that would be my my thought. Okay. I wasn't sure. It was very interesting. It has a whole entire list. And actually, it made me think like, 
if you ever need a case to solve, the one thing that I linked, it like lists all like the cold cases, like from how cold they like ranked how cold they are, and mm-hmm. et cetera. So right now, the family member remaining that's really like pushing for like some type of closure is her first cousin, Barry Isle. And he just hasn't given up hope. He writes letters to investigators and reporters to keep bringing attention to the case. In a Morning Call article, he said that for a while he was at peace that this case would remain a mystery. Yet in 2010, a grand jury convened in Northampton County to hear testimony on unsolved cases. And he was kind of furious that his cousins weren't on that list. He says, everybody forgets it. And I feel like I'm pretty much the only one who still remembers. It's just me. It's a lot for one person to bear. The Northampton County DA, John Morganelli, said this about the case. Grand jurors will not hear testimony in the Schultz's killings because it's a waste of resources, which is like a slap in the face. And that's a direct quote. Yikes. Wow. He went on to say, there's been absolutely no information on the case whatsoever in recent years. And I'm just like, damn. Like, how can you say that? I get that they tend to focus more on cases they have leads for, but it's it's still important. And these were children. Yep. In, In the same article, I guess, like... In one other sense, there was someone else who was, you know, quoted, I think he was like a state police officer and basically said, you know, even if it's a cold case, it still matters. But mm-hmm. like you have this DA saying it, what he said, and it's like, oh, it's I, I don't know. I just couldn't believe it. That'd be really be hard irritated. for that cousin to hear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to, though, just in the, the world we live in with budgets and everything being cut and that DA may have had to make some decisions. They might have really tough resources um, or really tight resources. So while I fully understand, you know, the upsetting nature of what he said, it's kind of one of those, if we have resources to work on four cases and we have 10 cases total, we're not going to use one of the four that we have resources for, for something that's this old that we've had no leads on. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, like, I totally I, understand. I fully agree that it should absolutely still remain important. And obviously that's like why we do this yeah. um, is to, to make sure that we kind of keep these things out and um, keep it in people's minds. But I think sometimes, I, I quite often I am glad that I am not a DA or that I am not like a politician. I am so glad I don't have to make these sorts of decisions and I just get to record myself talking about them. <laughs> For sure. He should probably just work on his bedside manner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Have some empathy. Exactly. So even with like the fam, most of the family have passed away and the initial investigators, the community really refuses to forget. Um, The alumni of Nazareth area high school's class of 1952 raised more than 2000 in private donations to erect a memorial marker near Nazareth areas, Andrew lay stadium. And according to a Lehigh Valley live article, Not only has the graduating class put together a physical scrapbook, they also 
converted it into a DVD. And basically it uh, showcases all of Gail's poetry and art. That's so great. Yeah, it's wonderful. And Barry actually found it stored in his parents, I guess, garage. And when he found it, he thought that that would be a great memorial to his cousins. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. It is. And I thought like, I thought I saw like one picture, but it's not something that you can like pull up. It's like an actual physical hard copy. They don't have like a website dedicated to it. Mm -hmm. And they have a copy of this DVD in each school library in the district, um, according to the Nazareth area school superintendent, Dennis Riker. And really some of the students that went to school with her said that, you know, hopefully if kids are lost or not like physically lost, but like lost on knowing what they want to do in the future or need inspiration or want to know about the history that maybe viewing it will bring them some direction, if you will. Aww. Yeah. In 2022, the case of Maurice Anne Chivrella was solved after 57 years using DNA and genealogy records. I believe we talked... I don't think we did her case, but I think we talked about her. We did She's talk, and we talked about it in the Facebook group. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of talk. This case has been brought up here and there that maybe this is what could potentially crack this case. I mean, we've been seeing a lot of older cases getting solved, especially just last year and in 2021. So maybe it could be... yeah what we need. So there were never any official persons of interest or suspects named there. There were, there were a couple, but they had like nicknames and it didn't really go into like why there was one person listed that it was like a guy from the neighborhood that lived with his, I think it was his dad. And he was just acting strange, I guess when the bodies were found. Okay. But again, through lie detector tests, they kind of moved on from him. Oh, boy. Um, Yeah. So it didn't seem like anything, like, too crazy, like, not like someone was found with, a, like, a bloody hammer or anything mm-hmm. like that. It was just, like, people acting weird, people acting strange, town gossip. And a lot of them didn't even, most of them were mentioned by nicknames and stuff. It's interesting because they never found any sort of murder weapon, right? Mm-mm. Nope. Wow. Not at all. So if you have any information on this crime, call Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers toll-free at 1-800-4PA-TIPS. All callers remain anonymous and could be eligible for a cash reward. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by Chelsea Brown. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. The music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.